Well, good morning. I want to talk a little bit as we got started today about moments when you have second thoughts. And we've all been there. You've said yes to the commitment. You've promised your kids, your spouse, your friend, whatever. You've accepted the dare. And it's all good and fun in the moment. And then you have to follow through with that commitment that you made. And you start to feel a completely different set of feelings about everything that sounded good a little bit ago. You have second thoughts. I, uh, I experienced this very vividly um, most recently, Friday when I realized that I was going to preach a sermon the next day. Um, but, but I'm here, and they just said, you got to get up there. Um, no, so, but really, I, I, the most vividly I remember experiencing those feelings of second thoughts was about a year ago when Hillary and I had our first child. And we were pregnant, and that's really, really exciting because you're going to have a baby. Everybody's excited about having a baby. And then you get closer to the due date and you realize you're having a baby. And you start to have all these other emotions that you didn't have just a little bit before. I remember so clearly we were sitting at dinner one night and it was very, very close to when the baby was going to be here. And we were talking and we were talking through what this whole process was going to look like. And people were going to come and visit us in the hospital and that would be really fun. And we were pros at visiting people in the hospital with a new baby. I get to do it for my job sometimes. Best hospital calls ever. And, and so we knew what that looked like, right? You go to visit somebody in the hospital, you hold the baby, you look at it sleeps or coos or does all sorts of cute things and you like that. And then at some point in the passing around of the baby, the baby will start to cry. And what do you do when you're visiting a newborn in the hospital and the baby starts to cry? Right? Hot potato. <laughs> Here, mom and dad, have your kid back. Um, right, so we knew that, and as we were talking it through, we had the realization that we were going to be mom and dad. And so people were going to hand the baby back to us when he started crying. And we had no idea what to do with a crying baby. I have no experience with this. I've never done this. I've never been a parent. I have no idea how to make a crying baby stop. Do you magically get powers when you become a parent that teach you how to stop a crying baby? I don't know. Maybe we're not cut out for this. We shouldn't be parents. We shouldn't have done this. I don't think there's anything we can do about it now, right? You know, the, you just start to walk through. Oh, my. What did we get ourselves into? We have a whole bunch of second thoughts. And as we look at the cross from the vantage point of the disciples this week, I think that's relevant. I think it really is a moment when they had second thoughts. See, as we go into what the disciples' view of the cross was, it's a little difficult. You read all the accounts of the crucifixion like we have the last week. We've read, this is the story of Jesus on the cross, and this is what was taking place there. And these are the people who were there and what they saw, and that's really difficult with the disciples because they aren't there. There's only one of them. John is there. And he's just noted as being there. We don't even hear about anything great that happened. He, he just says, the disciple that Jesus loved. Side note, come on, John, seriously. He got an awesome nickname in the Gospel of John, right? Dustin might come out with something really cool like the disciple Jesus loved in the Gospel of Dustin. Um, <laughs> but I'll take that up with him in heaven someday. Uh, no, John just notes he was there. We don't get any marvelous revelations from him. We just see he's there. And so as I'm trying to piece together what do we say about the vantage point of the disciples, 
I asked two really big questions. The first one is, why are the disciples not there? And the second one that you dig deeper into is, why is John? That first one, why are the disciples not there? I think in our heads we read the stories of, of them abandoning. They're not present. They left. And we sort of point fingers at them in our head. We make some judgments. And I don't know that those are fair judgments to make. We think they're cowards. We think maybe they weren't as all about Jesus as they said they were. But I don't know that I, I think any of those men were not all about Jesus. I think they were all about him. They loved him dearly. They made the profession before anybody else, this is the son of God, this is the Messiah. And they loved him as the Messiah who was going to set everything right in this world. He was going to overthrow the Romans who had put us under their foot for too long. He was going to free us from the bondage that we lived in. They dearly loved him as their Messiah. In fact, when the guards came to arrest Jesus, Peter cut off a guy's ear. I don't think he was aiming for an ear. He was ready to fight to the death to protect his Savior. Until Jesus bends down, picks up the ear, puts it back on the guy and says, nope, we're not going to do it that way. I'm going to go peacefully. They were all about Jesus until the moment when following Jesus no longer looked like they thought it would. How's this guy going to be our Messiah and overthrow the Romans when he submits to their guards? They're all about Jesus until the cross, that moment when following him no longer looks like we thought it was supposed to. They watch a trial that's completely rigged take place. And they say, I don't think that's what I signed up for. They watch a beating and torture Labels put on him that he didn't deserve, cursing, mockery, spitting. And he said, this is not what I signed up for. And then they start to have this really scary thought, what if they do it to me too? They get really, really scared and so they run. And we point fingers and we make a few judgments about them. And I don't know that that's really fair because I think we do the same thing a lot. I think we are all about Jesus. We are all about the Messiah that loves us and forgives us and freely bestows grace on us and saves us and prepares a place for us in heaven and gives us blessings. We love Jesus. Until the moment when following Jesus no longer looks like we thought it would. We see a cross and we, we get scared. We see a fixed trial with labels being put on people that aren't right. We see a beating, we see torture, and we say, this isn't what I signed up for. And we start to think, what if that happens to me too? So we get really scared and we run. And so I think we're in the same company as the disciples. And so if we really want to understand what is the vantage point a disciple is supposed to have of the cross, 
We need to go back a little bit before the crucifixion and we need to re-examine everything we're told about the cross. What is it that Jesus said about the cross? And a disturbing reality is that the very first cross Jesus ever mentions is the one that you would pick up as his disciple. Luke chapter 9, Jesus is in the middle of a very intense conversation with his disciples. Peter has just made the very bold statement, you are the Christ. I believe that's who you are. Jesus acknowledges it and then immediately moves on to say, as the Christ, I'm going to suffer greatly. I'm going to die and I will be raised again. And then in the very same breath, he moves on to this, Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Give you a little bit of background on what the disciples brought into that conversation. They didn't have Christian history. They didn't have hundreds of years of hearing the cross, seeing art that featured the cross. They didn't have thousands of hymns and songs that talked about the glory of the cross. They didn't have phrases like, that's my cross to bear, meaning something annoying in your life. Right? You're the social planner for your family. That's your cross to bear. You're so awesome. That's your cross to bear. (laughs) My wife knows that that's my cross to bear all the time. Uh, They didn't have those. They didn't have pretty necklaces in the shape of a cross. The cross meant one thing to them, and that was death. It was an instrument of death. And so here's the pitch that Jesus gives his disciples on following me. If you want to be my disciple, here's the deal. Deny everything you want. Pick up the thing that's going to kill you every day. And then do everything I say. Just between you and me, if I were casting vision for something big, I wanted a whole bunch of people to get on board with, I might take a different tactic, right? Jesus could benefit from some Christian leadership seminars. (laughs) You sit through enough of them and you think, oh my. Uh, No, but that's what he says. And Luke didn't hear wrong. Just a few chapters later, Luke 14, he would say this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Luke didn't hear the story wrong. Matthew 10, Matthew 16, Mark 8, they all tell the exact same conversation. Jesus makes it very, very clear that at some point following him will involve a cross. Yet when the cross becomes real in our life, it's a very, very scary thing and we run. When we look at the story, when the cross became real for the disciples, they ran. Why is that? I think we got to look at our friend John. Why is John there? It's a really great question, and he doesn't write out an answer. He doesn't give us a look into his thoughts. I've got some ideas, just spending some time trying to put myself in his shoes. And I do have a few reasons that I'm pretty sure John wasn't there. 
Pretty sure John wasn't there because it was a feel-good moment. Pretty sure John wasn't there because it was the churchy thing to do. Everybody else was doing it, and so he just went along. I'm pretty sure John is not there because he was feeling really blessed at the cross. I don't think John was there because it made sense. I think it was the exact opposite of all that. I think it was the most broken, confusing, disorienting, crushing moment of John's life. Yet he's there. John is there because he has nowhere else to go. And while John had nowhere else to go, the other disciples did. That's what they did. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover. So I know so-and-so's house. I know this place we can go. We'll just hide. This cross thing, it's terrifying. What if it happens to us too? So we're going to go hide. We're going to lay low for a while until this whole cross thing is over. And then we'll pick up the pieces and figure out what's next. That's what they did. They they went to other places. And I, I honestly believe that's our same problem. We have other places to run. When the cross becomes real, we have all sorts of places we can go except the cross. We can go to our jobs, we can go to work, we can go to our family, we can go to our friends, we can go to relationships, we can go to our money, we can go to sports, we can go to school, we can go to whatever it is that will allow us to lay low and stay safe until the whole thing blows over and then we can pick up the pieces and figure out what's next. A lot of us, we've worked out a system of following Jesus that does not involve a cross, at least any cross we pick up. We know that Jesus has one, had one, and that was a very good thing, but we're not so sure when it comes to us. The conversation that we have looks a little bit like this. It plays out like this in my head. Hey, Jesus, I want life and resurrection, and I want heaven. I really do want that, and you seem to be a lot better at resurrection than I am and the whole heaven thing, that seems very much like a God thing to take care of. And so I need you to take care of that God thing, okay? I would really appreciate it. I want the heaven, I want the resurrection thing. And Jesus, I got you covered. I know what it means to be a good person too. I actually, I have your Bible. And so I can see all the things that I need to do to be ready for that moment when I need you to do the God thing. And so I'm gonna be good when we get there. Okay, get heaven ready. If you got love and blessings and hope and promises that you wanna give me along the way, that's awesome. I'll make sure I'm ready to go. And the reason that I'll make sure I'm ready to go is because I know what I want too. I have a plan for what my life is gonna look like. And it's a pretty good plan. I know what makes me feel good. I know what I desire most. I know what it is I'm after, and so I'm going to go for it. And really, if you look at all the things that that make you a person that's ready for heaven, my plan doesn't conflict with them too much. And so it's good. So I'm going to do my thing. Jesus, I'll call you when I'm ready for you to do the God thing. 
None of us would say that out loud. <laughs> right? None of us would say that out loud. But I bet if you were to have a really honest, hard conversation in a dark corner of your heart somewhere, there's something a little bit like that going on. And I don't say that as the guy pointing fingers, I say it as the guy that fights that battle every single day. There's a problem with that system. The system of I'm going to do all these things that I need to to be ready for God to do his God thing. A man named Paul would write about the problem with this system. Philippians is a book in your Bible. It's a letter that he would write to a church. And there was a group of people in this church that was very, very concerned with making sure we did all the right things that we needed to do to be ready for God. We're going to do all the things we have to do so that when God is ready to do the resurrection thing, we're prepared. And they're putting a whole lot of faith in all these things that they need to do to be ready for that. And Paul would address this group of believers in chapter 3. He'd start at verse 4 and, and he would say this, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He then says in verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection. That big chunk, what Paul is saying is, listen, you think you're a good person, I'm better. Okay, as much as you want to talk about all the things that you've done to be ready for this, I did more things. I had the right last name, the right bloodline from the very first week of my life. I did everything you were supposed to do to make sure you were the person that God desired. I was the churchiest church person you've ever met. I was all about the things that God was all about. I fought anyone who wanted to stand against him. You want to bring any rule about being a good person against me, I won't be wrong ever. I was perfect at following all the rules. And so you want to talk about what a good person you are, forget it. I'm better. And let me tell you what I think about all that good stuff that I did. It's garbage. It is trash. The Greek word that's used there, if we translated it from what it would have meant to that church to what it would mean to our church today, I'd get in trouble if I said the word. The King James Version nicely translates it to dung. He says all that stuff, it's just trash in comparison to knowing Jesus. Because all that stuff didn't get me any righteousness. 
It didn't really make me right in front of God. The only way you can get right in front of God is through faith and knowing Jesus. And so he ends saying, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And we would agree with that last bit from Paul. We do want to know Christ. We want to know resurrection. So we say, yes, Jesus, I believe. I love you. You're Lord. I don't know how to do this. I want to know resurrection. I don't just want to know resurrection in the future. I want to know it right now. I want to experience new life that is different than the one I'm doing. I want that. I want to know you. But as long as we're still operating in our system, there's a problem. See, I cut Paul off from finishing his thought. Verses 10 and 11 say this. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. There's no dodging it. Anytime we look at the complete sayings of Jesus or Paul or Peter or John or anyone else that would write, there cannot be a resurrection without a crucifixion. There cannot be new life without a death. Jesus cannot march out of a tomb that he has not been placed into. And the picture that Jesus paints of following him is one that does involve a death. He's not necessarily talking about a literal death. He's talking about you sacrificing everything it is that you want. We don't get to do this picking and choosing. Hey, Jesus, take care of that resurrection heaven thing. I'm going to go after what I want. He says, no, in order for us to experience this resurrection thing, there has to be a death. And that's terrifying when it becomes a part of our story. That's terrifying when we face our own death. I don't know where you're at in this journey of following Jesus, what that looks like for you. Maybe this is a very new thing. It's all exciting. You feel like you're learning something new every single week. Maybe you've been doing it a long time, and this is all head nods. Maybe you've been filling a pew for a long time, and to be honest, you felt very dissatisfied with the whole church experience. Or you tried it a long time ago and just didn't know what the big deal was. It felt flat. Felt under-delivering. Maybe you're still just really skeptical of the whole thing. Here's an illustration that's been really helpful for me in my own personal life and understanding what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I think back to the public pool when I was a little kid, the high dive. Right, anybody? like? instantly have a, a, a picture pop in there ahead of summer. There's, there's the diving board that everybody goes off of. And then there's the big boy board that only the big boys jump off of, right? It's this giant nine, ten foot tall structure. It's the only thing in America you're left to like be able to climb without safety equipment and then just jump off in a pair of shorts. 
we need more things we can just jump off of onto concrete. Um, no. <laughs> but, but you watch people do it as a little kid. I remember just, just seeing all these people go off it and they come up out of the water and they've got a giant smile on their face. And they say, it's so fun. Your siblings, your parents, your friends, everybody else at the pool that's going on. They say, this is so fun. You have to try it. And you just say, okay, <laughs> maybe. And, and, and enough of like, you watch it long enough and enough people talk to you and you just say, okay. And so you climb up the ladder and you get up to the top and you walk out to the edge of that board and you curl your toes over and you look down and you have two options. First one, I can turn around and get back down and not have to feel this afraid anymore. The other one is I can jump. I can just go. Let gravity do its thing and see what it's like when I splash. And nobody can tell you exactly what that feeling in your stomach is going to be like until you jump. The third option we don't talk about because nobody would really consider it an option, and that is halfway jumping. <laughs> Play it out in your head a little bit. I jump, and the second my feet leave the board, I think, that was a terrible idea. I'm going to turn around and grab that diving board. <laughs> right? Just imagine all the grit and gravel that they've sprayed down onto that thing to make sure that your feet don't slip, taking off layers of skin. We don't even consider an option. I don't know if anything sounds more miserable or painful than halfway jumping off of a diving board. And I don't know that there's anything more miserable or painful than halfway following Jesus. See, from my experience, when I followed Jesus halfway, and that is I say, yes, Lord, I believe I want that resurrection thing. I also still know exactly what it is I want, and I'm going to go after that. What that leaves you with after a while is a whole bunch of rules that you hate and a lot of disappointment in yourself and a bunch of other people who will inevitably let you down. And so when things don't start to look the way we thought they would, we're out. that's not what's described. And it's not what John experienced. Let's go back to him. He's standing at the cross. And he's there because that's where Jesus is and he has no other options. John has given up everything. So much so he has no more places to run. He doesn't have friends anymore. He doesn't have family. He doesn't have a reputation. He doesn't have a community. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a money. He has nothing. He has given up his life for Jesus. And so the only place that he has left is wherever Jesus is. And even if that is the most broken confusing, disorienting place. It's where Jesus is and so it makes more sense than anywhere else. And that's another one of those things that doesn't make sense until you've been there. What the disciples found out is that even though they had places that were safe to hide, 
those places weren't worth being because Jesus wasn't there. They may have been safe, but there was no purpose because their Lord wasn't there. A resurrected Lord would appear to the disciples and it would change everything for them. And this Peter who was once afraid of the cross, afraid that it might happen to him, he would one day face execution by crucifixion for preaching Christ. And not only would he take it, he would ask that he might be crucified upside down for he wasn't worth dying the same death that his Lord did. Peter gave up everything. No longer was the cross scary because the cross was the place where Jesus had called him. And so we have a choice to make. Following Jesus is not a halfway in or out thing. C.S. Lewis describes what it is that Jesus asks of us better than I ever could. He says this in Mere Christianity. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. That's the proposition of discipleship. Every single day, take everything that you desire, every plan that you might have for yourself and put it on the chopping block and say, Jesus, if you want to kill it, go for it. We've said the last few weeks, no one put Jesus on the cross. He put himself there. And Jesus, when calling you to discipleship, he will not put you on a cross. Instead, what he asks you to do is willingly put your heart on one. He says, give me everything. Get rid of all your other options because you're going to spend the rest of your life figuring out that they're not worth it. I don't know what it looks like for you to really pick up a cross. Maybe it's taking that first really big step and saying, okay, I'm tired of just trying to figure out what faith looks like without experiencing it. I don't know what it's like to jump off the board until I do it. And that's a step you need to take. Maybe you've been sitting in a pew for a long time, but you've been holding on to a diving board the whole time and you need to have the really hard conversation of what does it look like to give up me. Maybe it's, it looks a lot smaller. Maybe it's making your office a place where gossip and cruel talk are no longer allowed because it's not what Christ has called you to be about and so it's just not gonna happen and whatever label people wanna put on you because of that, so be it. But that's what I gotta do. Maybe it's reorienting your mind to say that the most important hours of your day don't start at 8 a.m. when you pull out of your driveway, but at 6 p.m. when you pull in because everybody in your house desperately needs somebody to show them what it looks like to follow Jesus. 
Maybe it means not being comfortable with your family. Maybe it means tonight we're actually going to have to talk through our issues instead of burying our noses in our phone for a few hours. I don't know what it looks like for you. And maybe it looks really small, maybe it looks really big, but I got to tell you, any step you take in saying I'm ready for this guy to die so that I might have the things that Jesus wants for me, that's a big step. We want to help you take that step. If you need to talk through it, if you need to pray about it, if you need help figuring out what, what is Jesus calling me to, we have pastors, we have section hosts that would love to spend some time with you. Just have a seat at the end of the service and we'll get around. Jesus is very clear that if we try to save this life, if we try to save all these things that I want, what we'll do is we'll lose everything in the process. Yet somehow, if we're willing to kill that, we find life. Don't, don't leave trying to save a life that's not worth it. I don't know what he's calling you to. The question, what does the cross look like through the eyes of the disciples? I don't know, disciples, you tell me. May we be people who run to a cross. Because at that cross, there's Jesus. And there's nothing else worth having. Get rid of your other options. Forget about them. It's not a choice that he will force on you. It's a choice that you have to make. Make the one that chooses Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we have so very, very little to offer you in light of what you've already offered us. And God, so often I try to do all the things that will make me deserve it, and you're so clear that I can't. I have nothing to bring to the table except my heart. And so, Lord, I, I give it to you. And I pray for my friends that they would do the same thing, Lord, that we would be people who have put our hearts on the cross and say, Lord, take them, do whatever you want to. We're okay with that. Lord, may we be disciples who are at the cross. Would you please give us the courage to do that? We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.